Afternoon, evening, wherever and whenever we find you, and thank you for tuning in to Doth Protest Too Much, a Protestant historical theology podcast. And today we want to welcome Dr. Tremper Longman III for a special podcast. You may have heard that name. He has uh, written a lot of books and uh, books and articles on the on biblical in biblical studies on the Old Testament. Um, we have had biblical, a uh, couple times in the past, we've had biblical scholars on, and this is something we'd like to do more of because after all, the Bible is where it all starts. And so all theology at the very least, we could say, uh, Protestant theology uh, is derived from scripture. And of course, most of the arguments within the church are disputes over uh, if we are faithfully interpreting something from scripture or not. So scripture holds a special central and high place of authority uh, for all Christians. And so it's both fun and interesting to have biblical scholars like our guest today, Dr. Longman on to discuss how the Bible can be read, interpreted by Christians, and uh, importantly, how scholars approach the Bible and the history behind the Bible. So. Dr. Longman is a professor emeritus of biblical studies at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, where he taught full-time from 1998 to 2017. He holds a doctorate in Near Eastern Studies from Yale. He's a prolific writer of many articles and many books, including many textbooks on biblical studies used in colleges and seminaries, uh, as well as volumes that appear in various scholarly commentary series where he's written volumes on the book of Daniel, uh, the book of Jeremiah, Lamentations, and Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Um, and he's served as the translator for the New Living Translation Bible and a translation consultant for popular translations of the Bible, like the Message and the Holman Standard Bible. And really, Tremper, uh, if it's all right if we call you that for this episode, uh, James and I are honored to have you, uh, a distinguished biblical scholar yourself on the show. So, Thank you so much for being on. So. Well, thank, thank you, Drew, and thank you, James, for inviting me. Uh, I don't know about distinguished. I'll let other people decide that. But I've also been told I lack gravitas. So <laughs> I don't know where that's coming from. I mean, it, it seems like when I see a name just pop up a lot, I think that's distinguished. Oh, so. right. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, but Some yes. people take themselves too seriously, though, Trevor. Yeah, right. Exactly. exactly. Well, I love a humble scholar any day, you know. So, uh, so for the first question, this is one, and, and, and James and I kind of, you know, we had our little pre-show conversation. What are some first, you know, what are some good ways to start the show off? Um, I guess this is, this is, you know, this could be answered in many ways, I'm sure. But um, why would you say it's important? for Christians to realize that the Old Testament is scripture and what is lost if we lose the Old Testament? <laughs> That's a great 
question and actually very relevant because a lot of people are reconsidering, uh, you know, the Old Testament either kind of naively or even intentionally because the Old Testament they find more distant uh, from us culturally, chronologically, and and also they, you know, say that our faith is of course centered in Christ and so that drives people to the New Testament more often and then there are the uh, controversial issues of the Old Testament that include things like divine violence and um, and perhaps creation uh, origins issues and 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 other things uh, well let's just start with the fact that uh, the Old Testament is 77% of the Word of God, and that the church right. has recognized that the Old Testament is canon, it is scripture, it is, um, it is, you know, the standard of our faith and practice. And the New Testament actually makes no sense without the Old Testament. Right. Uh, and the New Testament itself, uh, cites the Old Testament quite frequently and I, and also Jesus himself fully embraces the Old Testament and says in Luke 24 that the whole Old Testament anticipates him. Mm -hmm. I sometimes talk about how um, how when I was young, you know, in elementary school, my father would take me to the movies, but for some reason he never would bother to check out the time when it started. And so sometimes we'd show up at a movie with 15 minutes left in it. And well, fun. It, was very, it was fun. <laughs> it was very, very exciting. I could tell, but I had no idea what was going on. Uh, now, my father would say, okay, we'll stay through the intermission, then we'll watch it till that time. But, uh, but reading the New Testament without the Old Testament, it's kind of like coming into the movie 15 minutes before the dramatic conclusion. And, um, and, and there are just so many riches there, you know, the wisdom literature as one example. Uh, but it is not easy. I mean, there are issues of continuity and discontinuity. What, um, what continues to sort of be actively relevant? I mean, obviously we're not offering animal sacrifices, but even that is significant as helping us, to help us understand the um, the crucifixion of Christ, but uh, but but that's one of the things I think that makes Christians uh, not so enthusiastic about the Old Testament. I don't want to say they're lazy, but it does take it does take work and thought, and um, and but it's well worth the effort. Have you noticed the tendency of of what I would call, and I'll explain what I mean by this, um, Sermon on the Mount Christianity. And I'm not, and what I mean by that is not the Sermon on the Mount is not a bad thing at all. It's a one of the great <laughs> things ever preached. Uh, but this kind of this reductionism to just Sermon on the Mount, because um, in the Sermon on the Mount, if you were to just take that snippet without any wider context and without any any other parts of like the Gospels or the narratives, you see like. Jesus saying a lot of great sounding things and a lot of uh, uh, he's a lot of in, uh, 
preaching and uh, imperative about uh, doing all these great things. And it's always step it, it, what he's saying is in contrast to what you've heard of old, you've heard of old, but now this is something new. And this is, this is the new thing and what we must do as good loving people and good loving Christians. So, and I'm wondering if it's, uh, if, if, if that's all people seem that if that's all that comes to mind about Jesus, um, you know, the old Testament wouldn't, seem to have much relevance but when it comes to like where he the proclamations and the type of things that come out of jesus's mind and other parts of the gospel they don't really make sense if you don't have the long tradition that the old testament gives us um yeah yeah, yeah I, well <laughs> first thing a couple things i'd say about that uh one is you can't really understand the sermon on the mount without an Old Testament background, because- Very true, Very true. Yeah. You know, Jesus is on a mountain talking about the law, and he mm -hmm. obviously, as background of that, is God giving the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And then the other thing is, uh, yeah, there are certain things, again, it's continuity and discontinuity, but sometimes people read things like, you've heard it said, you must not murder, I tell you, you must not hate, you've heard it said, you must not commit adultery. I tell you, you must not lust. As if the Old Testament doesn't teach that you right. shouldn't covet your neighbor's wife, you know, or you shouldn't. So the 10th commandment internalizes. So Jesus isn't saying you heard it said in the Old Testament. I, I, what he's saying is you've heard it said by your rabbis. Sure. <laughs> and so, right. so it, it kind of leads to this incorrect stereotype that the old testament is all about external behavior and the new testament is all about the heart of course deuteronomy and isaiah talk about circumcising the heart now the new covenant jeremiah 31 i do think uh is talking about a covenant that will be more internal more immediate but more not it's not a difference of kind it's a it's a uh, yeah so so yeah i think the other the other uh kind of i think inappropriate strategy people use to dismiss the old testament is to say that you got to judge everything in the bible by the standard of jesus mm -hmm. and you know and or simply jesus on the cross because you know uh, and greg boyd in a book recent book called crucifixion of the warrior god makes right. that argument as do others and the problem with that is you're not just dismissing the old testament then you're also dismissing the book of jesus and the book of revelation right and so um which is the class you know i'm not saying that greg boyd is a marcionite but he has he's right. offering something that has marcionite tendencies Right. Kind of um, practical Marcionism. Yeah. Uh, now, on, on one end, I totally get that. On the other end, I'm very, I'm very sympathetic. I don't know if that's the right word. I'm very much um, drawn to uh, kind of the interpretive lens like Luther offered. And I don't even want to say it's like the reformers. lens. It could be, but like Luther kind of gave like um, 
they might have even ranked it in, in a form of like how we read the Bible scripture, but like it was um, what he considered gospel, which was not just like the four books of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, but it was like uh, the, the, the message of the saving good news uh, that uh, the entire scripture needs to be read through that lens. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And so, which necessitates the Old Testament is read um, always with Christ in mind um, or a fulfillment that Christ is the fulfillment of yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. I forget the German phrase Christus Trebit or something. <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah. <laughs> but the um so here's here's my view on that. Uh, mm-hmm. again, citing Luke twenty four earlier, Jesus says the whole what we call Old Testament anticipates him. And um and so so in in a sense that idea is right, uh, but in another sense it's wrong in my opinion. I think that Christians ought to essentially read the Old Testament twice. Once in the context of the original audience and sort of bracket our 21st century Christian perspective, but then a second time from that 21st century Christian perspective um, to ask, you know, how how is Christ presented in this text? I mean, A Song of Songs is a really, in my opinion, good example of yeah. why you need a two-reading approach. Because if you go immediately to sort of the Christological interpretation, you end up allegorizing it um, and missing all the rich, uh, the rich, well, teaching might be the wrong word, but about the, 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 you miss the celebration of God's good gift of sexuality mm-hmm. or the idea that the Song of Songs is uh, the third part of a, of a biblical theology of sexuality where, you know, Genesis 2, the man and the woman are naked, feel no shame. Genesis 3, they put on clothes and in Genesis and in Song of Songs, they're often depicted, man, uh, unnamed man and woman are depicted in the garden naked and, right. and enjoying each other most of the time. But there are also, so I talk about the Song of Songs being about the already not yet redemption of sexuality, but then doing a Christological reading through mm-hmm. the prism of say, uh, Ephesians 5 and yeah, so. So maybe it may be fair to say like a very not a Christocentric, but a reading so intended on reading the Christological fulfillment uh, could run the, could ha- have the pitfall of being, of one dimensionalizing maybe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, well, I refer to my, I, I re, uh, and by the way, I, I participated in a five views books on Christ in the Old Testament um, with four other scholars that's coming out in the fall um where we talk about these issues i mean i consider my approach a ultimately a christological or even christotelic kind of interpretive approach um i i i do think so i i mean um on the one hand you have richard hayes and pete ends who have a sort of strict christotelic approach Mm -hmm. That is, you only really 
can see Christ in the Old Testament after the resurrection. To me, that doesn't take fully into account the fact that Christ tells the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, you know, how foolish you are and how slow to believe. Uh, it, it wasn't like, uh, you know, I know you had to wait till I was resurrected kind of thing. But on the other hand, um, the sort of Greg Beal um, approach, uh, which puts too much emphasis, in my opinion, on the conscious um, uh, intention of the author. Mm. Um, on the other hand, he doesn't take into account that no one seemed to get it. <laughs> yeah. And so so I think I find myself somewhere between those two those camps. Two. It's funny though those two like the two books I have on like the New Testament use of the old yeah is, yeah is the old book and the Richard Hayes book both much yeah there you go. Well <laughs> so and they both and they I both have the two I have the two opposite ends of the spectrum. That's true. And and you and you'll learn a lot from both of them sure uh, and i if yeah. anything i sort of tend toward the richard hayes uh, that is a great book i remember um i think i was oh gosh i can't even recall i was preaching a sermon two months ago and i used an insight an exegetical insight he had from that that i would not have come hmm. across and for our listeners i'll put a show note for that richard hayes uh, yeah. Yeah. good book recent book yeah yeah i mean he's a wonderful scholar and very, uh, very worth everything he wrote is worth reading, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Well, and Trimper, would you say that John Walton and John Goldingay would probably be a little further towards that strict Christotelism even than, than Richard Hayes? Uh, no, actually, I, I think uh, the two Johns would be more toward the, um, toward the, well, they might not even fit into the category. I mean, I've co-authored two books with John Walton, and we always and I edited uh, the NIVAC series with him, and we're really, really good friends. But we always uh, debate this issue because he he and John Goldengate, but for different reasons, uh, are hesitant to talk about the idea that Christ is in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I think personally, my friend John Walton, who you know taught at Moody and kind of came out of a dispensationalist background where you tend to have a bigger sense of discontinuity between the Old and New Testament. And I think John Goldengay and John Walton are motivated. Oh, I know John, John Goldengay is, uh, they're both good friends and John's one of the other uh, views in this book, Christ in the Old Testament. So um, John Golden Gaze, Golden Gaze is just uh, rightly worried that people who do Christological interpretation will ignore the Old Testament on its own terms. I try to preserve that with my two readings. Um, so a couple of the other participants, Craig, uh, Craig Carter and um, and uh, Jason Derushi, uh, they don't really allow any room for reading the Old Testament in its original setting. So, so both John Golden Gay and I were critical of them on that 
mm-hmm. edge. And of course, they were critical of us for paying any attention right. to them. And so, what what was the word you used? Christotel. Telic, yeah. So telic. So maybe ex- explain what that means. Sure. Um, so uh, so the as you know, Christo and Logos essence um, and Christo telic is based on telus goal. Oh, and so yeah. it's the idea uh, if you're if you use the term Christological or somebody uses the term Christological, they're they're probably essentially saying something to the effect of uh, the Old Testament reader should have gotten it. <laughs> they okay. should have understood because it. it's sort of resident in the meaning of the text. Whereas, whereas Hayes and um, I'm not sure Richard uses the term Christotelic. It was actually uh, there's a debate as to whether the term was coined by uh, Pete Enns or Doug Green, both of whom are my former students who I also helped hire at Westminster when I taught at Westminster Seminary. Um, uh, But I think one of those two kind of coined that term, which has become more popular, the idea that um, that it's uh, the the Christ in the Old Testament becomes more clear in the light of the resurrection right right in, in instead of uh it you know he there was a void in the old testament yeah until then and you it needs to be filled like you you wouldn't know there was a void quote unquote i know it's a, yeah a, yeah right right but, but until jesus comes that would be a christological but but the other way it would be uh it made perfect sense before, but yeah, yeah, Jesus yeah. brings it to full light, I guess. Yeah, right, <laughs> so, right, okay. right. And Greg Beal bridges the gap there, I think, uh, or tries to bridge the gap with um, his uh, Tremper's cognitive peripheral vision. Is that what you? Yeah. Is that what it is? Yeah, yeah. They had the two ideas in their mind at the same time. Yeah, I think it's. You see, uh, Greg is pretty strongly in in uh pretty strongly uh committed to the idea of uh conscious authorial intention on the part of the human author and is kind of not really open to the idea of census plenty or say um so he feels it's i i think people like greg worry that unless you are uh are attaching the meaning of a text to the author's conscious intention, then somehow you can read anything you want into it. I always talk about John the Baptist, you know, John the Baptist, he he baptized Jesus after talking about the one coming after me is going to gather all the chaff and burn it with unquenchable fire. He's gonna take an ax and chop the rotten wood out. Then Jesus goes out and does his thing, you know, preaching the good news and healing the sick and exercising demons. So John is in prison and he feels it necessary to send two disciples up to him. This is Matthew 11 to say, are you the one or, or should we expect another? In other words, I might've gotten it wrong because you're not doing what I expected. Yeah. And then I think Jesus's response 
to do more of the same in the light of later scripture is basically saying, yeah, I'm the guy, but I've heightened and intensified the battle against the spiritual powers and authority. And the other thing John wasn't consciously aware of is that Christ was going to come a second time and not just the first time, yeah. you know, not just one coming. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to ask you what, uh, what got you interested in the Old Testament? I mean, I, I found myself um, always, you know, like you said, a lot of Christians are naturally drawn to the New Testament. Um, and what I do, I mean, I, I, I teach uh, that being I'm a school chaplain. And so um, early on in my ministry, I didn't know this would be the route it took. But I'm now, you know, I've, I've had to teach Bible classes and I've had to brush up and familiarize myself uh, with the Old Testament. And as I've done that, I've become so much more appreciative of it. And um, I just, I, I like it a lot more than I would have had I not had those life circumstances that that uh, forced me to, um, you know, immerse myself more in the Old Testament. But um, so it was something later on in my own appreciation of it. But um, you know, how were you drawn? How were you drawn to it, really? I mean, it was, was it something all along or an interesting story? <laughs> no, no, yeah, no, I, um, like you, you know, it's kind of life experience or people you come across. And so I didn't become a Christian until my senior year in high school. And I went off to college. Uh, to a secular liberal arts college, small college. I wasn't much of a student at the time. I was interested in playing football, but I wasn't big enough to play for a Division One team. So I ended up going to Ohio Wesleyan University just north of uh, Columbus, where I lived. Mm -hmm. It was a great experience. It was during the Jesus Revolution in the late 60s, early 70s, and I became a Christian. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm interested in uh, Christianity, so I think I'll start taking religious studies courses. And of course, I get into the RS courses, and it was uh, pretty much, uh, especially after um, the uh, professors found out that there were a few of us who were new, sort of born again Christians. They, uh, they, you know, they didn't mean, they weren't mean, but they challenged our faith and thought it was naive, which of course it was, but, <laughs> but, uh, but at that point, uh, and that, at that point I met my future wife who arrived my second year, Alice, uh, James knows Alice and, and she had just come back from Labrie where she spent a summer with, Francis and Edith Schaefer and Oz Guinness, and uh, who had just, uh, she arrived the day Oz got married. Oz lives here in DC. We've kind of reconnected. And so, um, so, um, so, you know, she, she, uh, and she became a Christian through a circle of Westminster Theological Seminary. She grew up in Philadelphia. She's the one who introduced me to Westminster, but all her, um, the circle of Westminster students who were influential in her life were all went on to get PhDs in New Testament. So it was like Andrew Lincoln and uh, who wrote the Ephesians commentary and the word, uh, he was a 
student at Westminster, Jim Hurley. Uh, Wayne Grudem was there at that time, but he wasn't part of this circle. So, uh, but, uh, but there were a bunch of them who went on. So as I like to explain it, uh, as opposed to the picture, John Eldridge is something of a, of a I mean, I, I know him through my very good friend, Dan Allender, who also became a Christian. Dan Allender, the psychologist, and I have been best friends since eighth grade. So our journey overlaps a lot. Okay. So um, so basically, as I told John Eldridge, who was who wild at heart, who mm -hmm. has a kind of picture of the Christian man as a rancher or a fly fisherman, I said, no, 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 no. My <laughs> wife's picture of a Christian man was somebody with a PhD in biblical studies. <laughs> yeah. so my grade point my grade point average went from a C to an A. I don't think I got anything under an A after I met Alice my sophomore year. <laughs> Stopped playing football. And so that got me so I was and because of the challenge, um you know, I and because there weren't many resources around now, I like to tell people who weren't around in the late 60s or 70s that, you know, now we have all kinds of options for what translation we use or what commentary we're gonna have or get, or there wasn't much around in the 60s and 70s. So between being um, interested in being able to respond to the questions my professors were asking and also because of, um, a desire to maybe help develop more resources. I went to Westminster Seminary myself, and there I met, and I wasn't sure what I'd go into, but then I came, I I, I was taught by Ray Dillard, who uh, Ray Dillard uh, was a young, though he seemed old to me at the time, he was probably 31. Oh, he was probably about 30. Yeah, he was about 31. I was 25, he still seemed old, maybe because he was up front <laughs> teaching. And, but he was brilliant and charismatic and uh, he got me excited about the Old Testament. And uh, besides that, and everybody else in the classes ahead of me at Westminster were getting PhDs in New Testament. I thought, ah, somebody needs to do Old yeah, Testament. Yeah, you gotta be the, uh, <laughs> you have to go against the grain, so. Yeah, yeah. Now we do have one quintessential Christian uh, fit here. James is wearing flannel plaid. So is that more the image of a, uh, the Christian man, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the John Eldridge wild at heart. John, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm a vegan, so I'd be a terrible fisherman. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> I didn't know that right. about you, James. I actually did not. Yeah. Know. yeah. Um, so now, um, I want to go back to something you said earlier. I, uh, you know, that how many people find the Old Testament problematic. Um, so. You know, I've obviously I've seen this too that you know people see the Old Testament that their portrayal of God is problematic, or you know people in general if they're going to come across something in the Bible that they find more that they have reservations about or that um, that bothers them, it's usually like something from the Old Testament, at least much more than we'd see with when people uh, in regard to the New Testament, but. Um, I guess have these challenges been a part of your own life either like you personally like internally or maybe from others as you as you've been someone who's had to 
present Nick Spawn on the Old Testament as someone who's gone to be an expert on it. Um, you know, for audiences you talk to, you know, ha has I'm sure that's come up, but like has has the 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 challenges a lot of people have with the Old Testament. Um, has it been a part of of your life and career in kind of both of those senses? Yeah, yeah. Um, long term and more immediately. Um, so I started working on the issue of divine violence probably in 1980 when I gave a paper before it was really a controversial issue. Uh, it became a controversy. I was talking to our... <laughs> Our priest uh, preached on Psalm 94 last week, uh, uh, you know, the God of vengeance. Mm -hmm. And um, I said to him afterwards, I said, you know what? Putin has made it a lot easier for us to preach on that passage. Right. <laughs> but I've seen over the 40 years I've worked on a kind of an evolution, the first Till till nine eleven, it really wasn't a very controversial issue. The idea of divine violence, and then when nine eleven happened, where you where you saw kind of uh, you know an Islamic jihadist theology, which then people uh, thought, well, that sounds like the Book of Joshua to me. Then it became a, right. an ethical issue. Um, particularly for uh, Christians in the West, in the relatively peaceful West. Um, yeah, so so long, more recently, I actually, uh, Baker asked me to write a book, which I did called Confronting Old Testament Controversies. Uh, yeah, pressing questions. I never get the order right. But that was I, a good book, uh, I've read it. Good book. Oh, thanks, thanks. So I, I, um, I, um, I picked the four most controversial issues in the Old Testament uh, to, as I saw it at the time, namely creation, evolution, divine violence, sexuality, and history. And a little bit of it is a pushback on my more progressive evangelical friends who are starting to say things like, well, it doesn't really matter if the exodus happened uh, or, um, or, you know, the Old Testament, when it describes God as a warrior, it's not really describing the actual God. It's just letting Israel describe God in the and, and so forth and so on. Um, when it comes to creation and evolution, um, I'm, I, I, I take, I, I take the view that there is no contradiction between science and the Bible on this, that uh, that the Bible is telling us that God did it and a whole bunch of other things, but it's not telling us how God did it. Mm -hmm. And so we can let science tell us, uh, we, we can let science explore that question. Right, yeah. Um, it, it, that's one thing I've, I've always appreciated about your, I mean, about your scholarship. I mean, I, I'm a, you know, I, I'm not a fundamentalist, but I'm a maximalist. I say my, my position on like events and biblical narratives. I, 
you know. And so it's a lot of your writings have resonated with me. Um, I wanted to bring up one of the one other book I read from you. Uh, well, was, you were one of the contributors, and so I don't know wh which from the writing is your words and what's not, but the, A Biblical History of Israel. Yeah, right. Uh, was it Ian? I don't I, I, He writes a lot, and I don't know how to pronounce his last name. <laughs> Proven? Uh, Proven. Ian Proven. Proven. Yeah. Right, and there was another person, too. Uh, well, his his authorial name is V. Phillips Long, but we call him Phil. Phil Long. Well, okay. <laughs> so you, Ian, and Phil wrote uh, Doctors, you, Ian, and Phil wrote a biblical history of Israel. And I remember one of the things that you argue or one of y'all argues is that uh, are, are some of the assertions that scholars, uh, historical critical scholars have long made that sort of are just uncritically accepted by many in the academy. I remember, um, for instance, you point out how the, the patriarchs, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, that these guys from the early parts, chronologically early parts of the Old Testament are often judged to not be historical based on the supposed idea that when they were, um, when, when they are written about later, mm -hmm. yeah. Genesis becomes a finished product, that the writing reflects customs of later Israel. But like you cite examples of where actually, well, those customs written about actually don't uh, do not reflect the customs of later Israel. So there's kind of, I don't know if this is right to say, maybe a criterion of embarrassment, right? It's still there. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why do you think, um, I mean, I don't want to get you in trouble, but you seem like you're, you're, you're willing to be critical of things when they are, but why do you think uh, there's so many faulty assumptions that get perpetuated? Are there other examples of such as assumptions made about the Bible um, in the academy? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, um, I think traditional historical criticism, for one thing, operates on the assumption that there isn't a supernatural world, okay? Right. Um, and and even, even some scholars who are people of faith who um, do believe there's a supernatural world, when they do their scholarship, they'll bracket that understanding so they could speak the language of the rest of the scholarly community. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, um, so that I think is an assumption, whether taken out of con conviction or out of, um, you know, to Pure pressure. Yeah, well, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe <laughs> pressure, but yeah, um, I think that affects how one uh, sees these questions. Um, I mean, it is the case that we have no extra biblical attestation of the patriarchs, though we wouldn't expect to have extra biblical attestation of the patriarchs. I mean, they're uh, from that time period and their social status. I mean, I think Abraham was a relatively important, uh, you know, uh, shake. I mean, at, in Genesis 14, he can muster 300 and some men to go and take on the plundering kings from the east and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so um, so I, I, I do think that um, well, there there are a whole bunch of assumptions that are operative, uh, right? I I I 
I, um, I, when it comes to the patriarchs, and I actually did write that section on the patriarchs, I actually had the sort of bookends, the patriarchs and the uh, post-exilic, exilic and post-exilic period. Mm, okay. I think- um, the last, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Ian was an expert on the uh, United Monarchy and and or divided monarchy too, and Phil on earlier periods and and um, yeah. So, but we really, you know, you'll remember that it has a very lengthy introduction before we actually begin with the patriarchs. Um, because of the state of Old Testament studies, we needed a long kind of methodological prolegomena and interaction with- I enjoyed that first, I don't know how many pages that prolegomena, as you say, it was uh, very, very helpful, very illuminating about, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah thanks. I, and I don't take credit. I mean, I take credit that I read and interacted, but uh, <laughs> Eaton wrote most of that. Uh, Phil, Phil wrote one of the chapters, mm -hmm. but um, yeah. And I'll put a show note for our listeners too. It's a great book um, about the, the questions we have. It's about, you know, historical reliability of what we read in the Old Testament. So, yeah. Much enjoyed Thank, it. Thanks. Yeah. We're very happy. It's uh, enjoyed the success that it has. Um, in terms of also, you know, it was good that it was published by Westminster John Knox, which is not an evangelical press. And Westminster John Knox actually publishes us. They published John Bright, which is kind of a centrist historian, uh, fifth edition of uh, Bright. And then also some more radical minimalist historians. So. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we're we're not we're not ignored in the discussion, which is kind of, which is nice. Right. Well, uh, James and I had some questions uh, about to shift gears about biblical theology, but first I can't help but ask because the Exodus is one of my favorite. Ever since you know I was, I was in like elementary school and saw Ten Commandments, it's still a movie I rewatch time to time. It's like in my top ten favorite movies, uh, but. Uh, I recently read the five-part series. Uh, well, I, I did not read the book. I listened on the on Script podcast, which I don't know if you know that podcast. Yeah, I, I enjoy listening to it. But they had that that podcast had different contributors to the book Five Views on the Exodus, where they had five different. Oh, right. I know that series. They had the five different, you know, uh, five different scholars and how where they date the Exodus or they whether they believe they can even date it. You know the the wider question of its historic the historicity of the exodus and for me yeah. it's, because that's such a story I, I hold near and dear to my heart uh, yeah i where i'm very curious where, where do you arrive to on that on the exodus yeah. and its historical place yeah yeah so that's a topic i treat at some length in that controversies book too um but, I must have missed that chapter. I'm sorry. That's all right. That's all right. I definitely liked the sexuality chapter a lot. And yeah, uh, yeah. And well, that's okay. Yeah. So, um, but I just mentioned that for anybody who's listening that might yeah, want to yeah. get a fuller kind of presentation of it in there. I, I first make the case that 
the Exodus is a story that if there isn't a historical base to it, it really doesn't have any theological significance. Uh, I say that over against people um, who say, you know, it's a good story about how God saves, but it didn't actually happen. I'm going, wait a minute. This is a story that is that is trying to establish a track record for God. <laughs> we know God can save because he did it then. And so yeah. Psalm 77, for instance, where the psalmist is in turmoil in his own life, and he thinks uh, God has let him down, but then he remembers the Exodus, mm -hmm. God, and particularly the crossing of the sea. And that gives him confidence in a troubled present and hope to live for the future. So, um, so uh, that, and that said, then I think um, there is no direct evidence of the Exodus. I think Jim Hoffmeyer, who's done a lot of work on, he's an Egyptologist who teaches at Trinity um, Seminary and uh, and Jim points out that it, what the, um, w you know, it doesn't name the Pharaoh uh, and that's mimicking Egyptian practice of never naming a enemy king. Mm -hmm. But that that's what does raise the question of timing, you know, and so uh, time didn't permit us to get into it all. Um, and and of course, archaeology enters into the discussion, and uh, people often wrongly think archaeology is some kind of science that, uh, and and I point out, not being an archaeologist myself, but doing doing uh, some postgrad archaeology with some of the leading archaeologists, kind of on archaeological theory. Uh, the one thing that they actually impressed on me is how much, you know, um, interpretations involved in dealing with archeological information. So bottom line is I'm not dogmatic on whether the Exodus happened in the 15th century or the 13th century. I think probably the strongest argument is for the 13th century, uh, but, um, but, um, but I think what is important is to insist that it happened. And then there's a whole bunch of kind of supporting indirect evidence that we can refer to, like the mention of Israel in the so-called Merneptistila mm -hmm. of 1209 BC. I actually think the Amarna tablets are interesting collaboration not a direct collaboration. Certainly the Habiru who are mentioned frequently in those letters it isn't a direct reference to an ethnic group called the Habiru. It's a social category of landless people who pose a threat to civilization. And these Canaanite kings would have thought that <laughs> that the, uh, so, I mean, it could be that that would probably uh, require a 15th century exodus though, and then it'd be during the period of judges. So, um, and the other thing I think that, uh, one, I think sometimes in 
interpretive imagination sometimes creates a problem for us. For instance, one of the big issues is Jericho and the fact that it doesn't show occupation, at least in the 15th century. But that's because we imagine Jericho being this impenetrable, uh, incredibly walled city. And there are good theological arguments to think that that might be an overly romanticized picture of Jericho right. and, and those kind of things. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I kind of just go with the default 13th century only because I, well, this goes back to when I taught fifth grade Old Testament. I liked to pull up a picture of Ramses the second's yeah. mummy because I'd be like, you know, that guy is still around today. That barely, yeah, yeah. I'd Google image it, I'd pop it up, and they'd all go, ah, well, I, I gave him a warning. <laughs> I gave him a warning there about to be looking at a mummy. Yeah. So. And you'll, <laughs> speaking of uh, the Ten Commandments, Cecil B. DeMille plays such a good rival to uh, Charlton Heston's. Yeah. Moses. Well, Yul, Yul Brenner. Yul Brenner. Yeah. Yeah. Yul Brenner. Yeah. yeah. Um, awesome movie uh so shifting gears a little bit um so james and i were talking prior to the episode and we always you know we've heard it and you i think you actually kind of walked in on the, the pre-show conversation before we hit record but um it, we, we see it as a very smug and condescending thing when we hear people say uh that the bible is not a book it's a library of books um I get what that means on one end. I, I'll, I'll use that saying too with the students and then quickly, you know, offer also that it's a, also a full, one full story. It's an anthology, but it's important to know, you know, the differences between the different books and the writers. But um, how would you respond though? You know, if someone was, uh, was really, you know, was forcefully saying, you know, emphasizing that the Bible's a library, uh, not at one book. How would you respond to that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it sounds like I'd respond like you respond. Okay. <laughs> acknowledging, acknowledging that, yeah, yeah, it's composed of many different books written at different time periods, different genres, but there is a coherence there that, um, that you, you should uh, recognize and and that um that what might be seen as contradictions or serious tensions are uh really not <laughs> yeah. uh but they're yeah so for instance i think job and ecclesiastes aren't in in uh conflict with proverbs i think they provide a kind of canonical corrective to overreading of proverbs to incorrect readings of proverbs um, so um, and there are lots of incorrect readings of proverbs kind of the prosperity gospel approach to the book of proverbs treating proverbs as if they give a whole bunch of promises that if you are wise you're automatically going to be rich and healthy and everything and uh, and uh Ray Van Leeuwen, a uh, good friend, also a proverb scholar, 
wrote an article on the better than Proverbs. You know, it's, it's better to be poor and wise than to be uh, rich and a fool. So yeah, you could be a wise, but very poor person too. Yeah. <laughs> or one of my personal favorites in terms of uh, Proverbs and, and how there, there could be some discontinuities. I think it's in Proverbs 24. It's either 22 or 25 where you don't treat a fool according to his folly, but then a couple of verses later, oh, yeah. you do yeah. treat a fool according yeah. to his folly. Yeah, yeah. I I often lecture on that. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. So 26, uh, there we go. Yeah. 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 So it's um it's that's that's the best and most striking example of of if you don't understand that proverbs are only true when applied to the right situation you're going to treat that as some kind of contradiction right uh, but but it tells us that being wise involves more than just knowing the proverbs you have to be able to read people and read situations to know which proverb is relevant to that time right. and situation right so so we, uh, we, we've covered a lot of ground so far, and we're digging a little bit now into biblical theology. I, I wonder if if you could give us, and I know this is a, a, a terrible thing I'm going to ask you, but could you give us a brief description or a brief paragraph summary of what biblical theology is? I know there have been volumes that have been written on it, so to condense it so much would be tough, but, but what would you say? Yeah, so I mean, I'll tell you what my view of biblical theology is. And by the way, I'm writing a trilogy now, finishing up a book on literary approaches to the Old Testament, then doing historical approaches to the Old Testament, and then doing theological approaches, which, uh, of course, that'll be the subject of that final book. But biblical theology uh, begins with what we were just talking about, the diversity, but also the organic unity of the book, I, I, uh, when I introduce biblical theology, I usually start by asking, "What's what's the Bible about?" And the answer is, "The Bible's about God," you know, but it's not about God in the abstract. Um, you know, it's about God in relationship, and uh, and it's communicated through stories. I would say they're story-like histories, but uh, through stories and poems and letters. Uh, so not sort of abstract um, theology or philosophical treatise, uh, but there there is this uh, coherence in that you can see in the way God's described, for instance, in the Old Testament, you know, uh, God is typically described metaphorically or by simile. God is like, God is a shepherd, God is a warrior, God is a king. Uh, God is, you know, God is a king who enters into covenants or treaties with his people. So to me, the most fruitful way of doing biblical theology is taking those themes and seeing how they develop from Genesis into the New Testament. Right. So, um, and then you could see that kind of coherence to the biblical text. Right. You know, one of the, you know, I think biblical theology was, was um, I'm glad I've, I've sought that kind of out on my own um, 
because I, I feel like uh, one of the things I struggle with at seminary, and, and, and occasionally James and I, and then Charlie, who, who we have on the show a lot, we'll, we'll bring up kind of our own formation, um, uh, not just because these are parts of our lives, but uh, that play an important part, but because of, um, or it's because we, we bring up experiences we had maybe with seminary and higher ed, uh, because we're, we're trying to see if maybe there's an indicator of what goes on more broadly in it or what is taught or how something is taught. Uh, and we're not trying to be too critical. We're just trying to maybe see, uh, because my experience, uh, when it came to the old Testament, I didn't feel that I, myself and my seminary experience got a lot out of old Testament coursework. Um, and this is a very different experience from my new Testament coursework, uh, which, um, where we surveyed in the New Testament coursework, we surveyed various writings and looked at them from many angles, but we still looked at them importantly for, for why they are important for Christians, for the church, for believers, uh, you know, however you want to say that. Um, and so tying, you know, what's the meaning, what's the inner coherence behind all, even though recognizing there's a literary difference between all the different New Testament writings, what is, what is coherent, what, what unites them? Um, but um, I, I felt like when it came to the Old Testament, I, I, it was entirely criticism uh, and not just historical criticism, but also moral criticism, you know, and, and there was little attention given to the meaning of, you know, the writings, how the, does this apply to our lives? Um, I, I think it was even, I even got the sense that it was kind of uh, seen as disdainful to even bring that angle up in class discussion. Hmm. Um, so it, it was basically, you know, okay, here's the book. These events likely didn't happen. We used the John Collins textbook, by the way. I can edit that out later, but I, I think that had something to do with it. And, and um, uh, you know, here are some neat, interesting Near Eastern cultural things. And that stuff is, by the way, very interesting. But, um, you know, it's it, it, it was, I didn't get excited about the Old Testament. Like, yeah. I, I didn't, and I didn't feel it was approached holistically, uh, you know. Um, yeah. So I'll end my rant, and uh, but do either of you have any comment on that? <laughs> <laughs> well, just sorry you had that experience. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm not trying to. Well, yeah. you know, no, no, I said, no. <laughs> I, I'll ask. I'll ask you after the show at seminary. It was. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, I've mentioned it before, and the, and the New Testament department was amazing. So, um, so that I'll, I'll add my two cents <laughs> in. So. Um, <clears throat> I had I had Stephen Cook for Old Testament Tremper, who you know well, and um, and I'm very thankful for the work that he did to introduce me to like Brevard Childs canonical criticism, to walk back some of the um, the the deep focus on I can never remember which one is which uh, uh, the four source theory is the Old Testament documentary hypothesis New yeah. Testament right yeah yeah so the yeah. four source theory you know source criticism. And uh, the reality that by the time I was in seminary, really by the time I was in college and was learning about it, it was already out of vogue, even though that was what I was being taught. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I was able to learn from Dr. Cook um, and from other wonderful people in New Testament, like uh, John Yeh, um, about the connectivity between the Old and New Testaments. And, and you know, I, when I took a class with Dr. Ye on John's gospel. I just remember a light being a light turning on when Jesus said, uh, and I think it's John 
I don't remember which one it's John four, John eight, something like that, or maybe John six, somewhere in there. Uh, if you've, uh, if you've read Moses, you've read about me because he wrote about me or something to that effect. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. the, the, the very same reality that he's expressing in Luke 24. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and the fact that the old Testament is not, um, a, a preface to the new Testament, uh, but rather is part of and is key to our um, our understanding of the New Testament. I mean, to say Jesus is Lord means uh, nothing unless you know contextually what it means. Or to say Jesus is Messiah, Jesus is uh, the Redeemer, unless you have any sort any sort of understanding of all of those contextual in the Old Testament, which is yeah. why the Exodus is so important, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And and. Um, I'll say a couple a couple of things about that, and then I want to ask you one more question, Tremper. Um, one of the things that that I have appreciated so much about your scholarship is the series of books that you have written, or you and John Walton have written. The How to Read series is what I call it. I don't know what it's officially titled, but um, the How to Read Genesis, How to Read Exodus, How to Read. Uh, they're all on my bookshelf over here. Uh, Proverbs, <laughs> Job, Psalms. Um, I have used those as primary texts for Bible study because of how helpful they are in looking at that larger picture. Um, especially when I took a sort of typological look at Genesis when I taught um, at, at church. So this is a way I can publicly thank you for the important work that you've done on Old Testament uh scholarship and, and and what have you um but also to just say that what you're doing really matters on the ground wow. it's very helpful for for those of us who are teaching we're very appreciative and and likewise i i, I know james you wanted to get to another question but i i, I do want i want to share that uh because uh as a school teacher who um you know has had to go go to you know I had to revisit Old Testament and and see more of a theology behind it. Um, you've been your writings have been very very helpful in that. And so, um, and now have you? In my little rant a moment ago. Have, have what's your observation? I know James, you wanted to ask another question, but um, I, I am curious if Tremper, if you, what's your observation of uh, approaches to how the Old Testament is taught in kind of just the you know, higher ed or just in seminaries and divinity schools, is it, is it, um, is it very concerned with, uh, I guess, the, the, the bigger picture, as James says, or is it really just uh, Near Eastern literature? I mean, what does <laughs> it vary? I mean, yeah, yeah, I think, I think, um, I think you could find both approaches out there. Um, but at least the gang I hang out with, you know, the, yeah. <laughs> the Golden Gates, the Waltons, the uh, I'm reading Craig Bartholomew's new manuscript. Uh, you know, they they approach the the big picture and treat it as the word of God. And you know, we'll interact with critical issues and so forth. But um, but yeah. Um, I, it, when you were describing your class, I, I don't know uh, what seminary it was, but it kind of reminded me of my experience with a lot of my 
teachers at Westminster years ago, you know, very conservative reform school, but you know, they, especially the first generation, first, first generation and a half of Westminster um, seminary. I, I was on the faculty from 1980 to 1998. I'm considered part of middle Westminster, yeah. but the, uh, but the first generation, as wonderful as they were, they spent all their time on apologetics. You know, you take a gospel class and it would all be, you know, a critique of the historical Jesus, but it wouldn't tell you, you know, what the gospels right. were right. talking right. about. We're doing theology or... Right, there can be a, I guess, a conservative version of that too. Right? Yeah, there is a, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think, I think at least in most seminaries, conservative seminaries these days, uh, moved away from that kind of apologetic approach to a more uh, positive sure. appreciation. Partly, though, because, um, you know, it, when the when the first generation was teaching, too, they could assume that their students had actually had a better knowledge of the Bible's content. The biblical literacy and formation, it was a, yeah. it was a given yeah. in a way that, you know, it's not. Really yeah. And I mean, of course, every every generation of professors feel that their students are not as well prepared as they were when they went in. So I don't know how. <laughs> and uh, and I wasn't trying to single out like, I mean, I think I'm speaking to a broader thing yeah um, and my seminary my seminary doesn't didn't have doesn't have an old testament that was outsourced through another institutional setup so i'm actually oh. not dissing my seminary by saying yeah that. okay <laughs> <laughs> but um but yes um no thank you thank you for and you're right there is a uh yeah you know conservative version of of something that totally misses um what the theology the bible is and hmm and an appreciation right. of, of, of that. So thank you. So, so as we're wrapping up, Tremper, um, a two-part final question. Any good biblical theology book recommendations? And uh, what, what would you like to plug of your current work? <laughs> well, thanks. Um, you know, my, I, I think there are a lot of really good and helpful stimulating uh, biblical theologies out there, all of which I would also have my disagreements with, which is why, I mean, but not, but I learn a lot from them. And, uh, but I think of uh, uh, Bruce Walke's Old Testament theology. Bruce was a colleague of mine at Westminster for a while. Uh, John Golden Gay has uh, a good multi-volume series, which is really a biblical theology um mark boda has a really nice short i mean one of the things i don't know why but uh i think when people do an old testament theology they feel like they have to write five six hundred pages but uh <laughs> boda has a nice like 150 page book called the heart of the old testament mark's a former student of mine too is really nice. a wonderful uh lecturer and uh writer um you know, and I, I, I'm also an advocate for really serious students reading books from outside our particular tradition, read people that we might disagree with, but who will stimulate us. And I would put Walter Brueggemann in that category. 
Um, yeah. And others, I think Brueggemann's Old Testament theology is very stimulating and interesting, though I think he plays different uh, parts of the Old Testament over against each other a little bit too much. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And uh, and what about your what about oh, your current right. work? So um, I have a commentary on Revelation coming out in May that I Ooh, want to talk I've about. Already pre-ordered it. My yeah, thank you. Book thank of you. the Bible. <laughs> yeah, it's in a series called the New Testament through Old Testament eyes, and so um, so and of course Revelation has so much Old Testament imagery that it was a lot of fun to write on that book um yeah. yeah so that and then and then the controversies book and i think you missed one how to read book the, mo the most recent one came out about a year and a half ago it's called how oh, to read daniel daniel right yeah it's, oh, it's in my den right now actually okay <laughs> yeah. yeah thanks thanks yeah yeah uh tremper thanks for being on the show this has been like a huge delight um I was excited about it. I was looking forward to it. I mean, I wanted to get a yeah biblical scholar on, but like when James said he knew you, I'm like, oh my gosh, Tremper is like a prolific writer and I've read several of his books. He, I, is he willing to do this? And you were, so thank you. I mean, this has well, been an awesome discussion. Uh, so. Been a lot of fun. Thanks for your yeah. questions and interaction. And We really appreciate the time you yeah. got for this. So. Absolutely. Have, thank you so much. God bless. And for our listeners, we will, uh, we will, you will hear from us soon. So God bless.